0: Well, now, um, if I'll ask you to please silence your cell phones to get ready to hear our lecture today. Um, It's my pleasure to do this every time we have a banner lecture, but especially today um, when I get to introduce one of our own. This month, as you know, is crowded with significant Civil War sesquicentennial dates, perhaps none more um, remarkable, I guess, this week than the 150th anniversary of the bombardment and surrender of Fort Sumter which began the conflict uh, of the Civil War in earnest. When Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated in March 1861, Virginia remained a loyal state within the Union. In the convention that met in Richmond to consider the Commonwealth's relationship to the national government, Union men held a strong majority. But as events unfolded, their loyalty wavered. Today's speaker will recount the dramatic events of that spring when no one could foretell the future of the country, seemingly poised on the brink of dissolution. Nelson Langford is the Vice President for Programs and the Virginia Dabney Editor of the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography here at the VHS. He's the author and editor of several books including Richmond Burning, The Last Days of the Confederate Capital, and more appropriate to this afternoon's lecture, Cry Havoc, The Crooked Road to Civil War. So please join me in welcoming VHS's own, my colleague and friend, Nelson Langford.
1: Thanks so much, Paul, and thank all of you for coming out today to hear this talk. I'd, I'd like to add my thanks to uh, Ed and Dave from the Park Service for making this uh, series possible. Uh, this was not the last of the co-sponsored lectures with the Park Service. We have another one coming up in the fall. Now if I can just turn on the light. There we go. Um, There's actually one more piece of housekeeping we have to do besides turning off those uh, bothersome cell phones. We need to do one thing. We need to learn this new word, (laughs) sesquicentennial, which is just a fancy Latin term for something that uh, was 150 years ago. So that's what we're in, and if you didn't know it before this week, you certainly do now, and you'll be hearing about the sesquicentennial for the next four years. I mean, it, uh, it doesn't seem that long ago, does it? I mean, well, it doesn't to me anyway. <laughs> uh, and it just, it just goes to show that William Faulkner, Faulkner was right that the past isn't dead. It's not even past. Um, So let's start with something that's more than 150 years ago that concerns this gentleman, John Brown. We all know him, uh, that picture on the right when he had that luxuriant beard when he was captured to Harper's Ferry. But I like to show the the earlier picture, which really shows you the steely determination and even fanaticism uh, of the clean-shaven John Brown. You all know the story. In October 1859, Brown and a little band of desperate men descended on Harper's Ferry and took over the federal arsenal there. They wanted to spark a slave uprising throughout Virginia and the whole South. Um, But it was all over very quickly. In a matter of hours, all of Brown's men were either dead, fugitives, or like Brown, uh, captives. Um, White southerners kind of nervously congratulated themselves because the slaves hadn't risen to Brown's standard, but in prison (coughs) Brown exerted a power over his fate in in a remarkable way. And this is what he said as a prisoner waiting to be tried and, and executed. I have been whipped but am sure that I can recover all the lost capital occasioned by the disaster by only hanging a few moments by the neck. And that was the grim and oddly rational calculation of a man who was a determined man, a fanatical man, uh, driven by obsession, but, but by no means insane. Virginia's governor, Henry Alexander Wise, went up to uh, the county seat, Charlestown, where they ha- held Brown captive and interviewed him in person. Now, Wise was an incendiary partisan. He was eager to uh, defend Southern honor at the, at the, the, the least slight perceived or, or real. He was uh, a man of gaunt uh, angular features and in many ways he had the same a similar temperament uh, to Brown. He was a very a volatile man easily uh, uh, set off. Um, and this is what he said after he interviewed John Brown. Uh, Henry Wise this, this almost violent partisan uh, and becoming the leader of the secessionist radicals. He said of Brown, he is a bundle of the best nerves I ever saw. And he inspired me with great trust in his integrity. He is a fanatic, but firm, truthful, and intelligent. And Wise gave Brown what he wanted. He hanged him. And here's a wonderful uh, mural of Wise. The, the, I mean, not, not Wise, but, uh, John Brown, the Christ-like figure presaging the Civil War where you can see Civil War soldiers around his feet. Um, On his way to the scaffold, Brown wrote this prophecy down on a little slip of paper. I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. Up in New England, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, encouraged Americans to look at Brown in a new way. The martyr, he said, quote, will make the gallows as glorious as the cross. Now that kind of talk filled white Southerners with hard because it invoked the slave uprising that Brown wanted to trigger and that people like Emerson were obviously supporting. Um, but those white Southerners misconstrued Brown and his supporters. Um, it's true that at the time of Brown's execution he um, uh, there were uh, prayer vigils in churches across the, south, uh, the North sponsored by abolitionists. But People quickly forgot about Brown and went on with their daily lives. Uh, you know, We think that people today have uh, the attention span of gnats. Well, th- the same was true back then. Our, our predecessors were, were no more uh, able to keep their focus o- on one event uh, than, than we are. Um, but the point about talking about Brown is that events like the raid on Harper's Ferry and the reaction to them, both in the north and the south, showed how bitterly divided our nation had become by the late 1850s. Now that's the prologue to the story I want to tell today and I want to talk about mainly about Virginia, Maryland and Washington D.C. in March and April of 1861. And The title of the talk, The Crooked Road to Civil War is the subtitle of of my last book And, and I chose that specifically because there was no clear one path getting from point A to point B. So I want to tell that story in three acts. The first act is Lincoln's inauguration and the Virginia Convention that Paul mentioned that was meeting at the time of Lincoln's inauguration. That's act one. Act two, the immediate triggers to war. And act three, the descent into violence in late April. So act one, the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. And you can see uh, this is a photograph taken of that event and you can see the uh, scaffolding uh, on the Capitol. The, the dome, the new dome of the Capitol was incomplete and I'm, I'm hardly uh, the first historian to make a metaphor between the incomplete state of the Capitol and of the nation. Um, when Lincoln was inaugurated, as I said, the Virginia Constitutional Convention was meeting here in Richmond. Um, but by that time, by March the 4th, 1861, this was the state of the nation. There were seven states in the Deep South that had seceded before Lincoln was inaugurated. And they were busy forming a new republic in the Deep South at Montgomery, Alabama. You can see the three states of the North at the top. And of particular interest to me are the, the eight slave states in the middle. These were states that sanctioned slavery, but they remained loyal even after Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated as president. Um, In the minds of the secessionist radicals in the Deep South, Lincoln's election the previous fall by itself justified leaving uh, the nation. They didn't like the outcome of the election, and so, figuratively speaking, they took their marbles and went home. But um, the key point is, even after the Confederacy was organizing in Montgomery, those eight slave states that remained in the Union had more southerners in them than than the confederate states. So that upper south block of states was crucial uh, to the future for both sides. By then you had two men vying to be the leader of two independent countries uh, where there was one only a few months before. Uh, If you think about these two, Lincoln wasn't supposed to be there, was he? He, was, he wasn't supposed to have gotten the Republican nomination. He was very much a dark horse, but he ended up winning uh, the presidency. Um, but in the spring, you know, he became a great president, but his greatness came later. And in this period right after his inauguration, he, he vacillated quite a bit, and it even seemed like he didn't have control over his own cabinet. Jefferson Davis uh, looked the part of a national leader. He had tremendous energy for what he saw as the justice of his cause. He, he uh, exuded tremendous self contr- uh, self-control and reserve, but the, the uh, personality qualities that he had that, that uh, diminished his presidency, were, they were hidden uh, in the future. His, his tendency to be touchy and to be unwilling to compromise and to meddle in the work of his subordinates. All that was in the future, both Davis's future and Lincoln's future, Uh, and even more so in the future was the fact of war because there was as yet no war. People didn't know they were living in the antebellum era. Um, A clash may have been likely, and I think uh, by this point it's hard to imagine there not being some kind of clash, but the exact way it happened wasn't just determined by impersonal historical forces. uh, Quirks of timing and character and place uh, would influence the way history unfolded and the way the nation broke apart. Um, take for example that Virginia Convention which uh, was meeting at the time of Lincoln's inauguration. Um, in the winter of 1861 a number of states in the upper south had, had, had elections and they were dominated by Union men and several of the states call constitutional conventions including Virginia. The most important of those conventions was in Virginia. And the secessionist minority was just devastated when they saw the outcome of the election because the conservative union men dominated the Virginia meeting. There were 152 delegates in all, lots and lots of lawyers. Uh, now, they, when they first convened in February, they met at the Mechanics Institute, a building down at the base of Capitol Square, which also, by the way, housed the uh, Virginia Historical Society. Um, and then when the General Assembly adjourned, the convention moved up the hill to the Capitol, to uh, Thomas Jefferson's Roman temple on a hill, the first neoclassical building in all of America. Um, In early March, all the factions in this convention favored delay. The secessionist radicals knew they were in a minority and they were content to buy their time and let the Confederates uh, at Montgomery Uh, build up their new republic before they, they took action. The conservative majority wanted to delay action too because above all they wanted to avoid anything hasty. They certainly wanted to ward off any calls for secession and the special hope of this conservative unionist majority lay in consultation with the other states of the border, the other upper south states and I'll come back to this a number of times. That was the lodestar for the Unionist majority, consultation with our fellows in the upper south. Uh, well, the debates on the floor of the convention became heated and ugly and personal very quickly. Jubal Early was there. We remember him as a Confederate general, right? One of the great leaders of the Confederate hierarchy and even after the war, perhaps the prime exponent of the lost cause. But um, at this time, he was a delegate to the convention and he was a strong unionist. He poured scorn on the ideas of the secessionist. And if you go upstairs to our exhibit an, an American turning point, the introductory section has prominently displayed a portrait of Jubal early for this reason. He was all of these things. He was later a Confederate general and an exponent of the lost cause, but now in March of 1861, he was a strong unionist. Um, this is this is a, he he was a profane and crusty attorney from Franklin County. He was stooped with premature arthritis, and he had a high squeaky voice that a friend said made a sound like a Chinese fiddle. Uh, whatever that means. But, but he had this powerful sense of rectitude that overcame all those physical disabilities. Um, and This is what he said. He said, the real people of Virginia, the bone and sinew of the state are at home calmly and quietly going about their personal lives. They don't give a fig for the noisy secession demonstrations by radicals in the streets of Richmond. Um, John Good, who was a delegate from a neighboring county Uh, got up and said, well actually uh, Mr. Early the the farmers of Franklin County are hot for secession. Well, Early exploded. How dare you presume to know the minds of my constituents. And they they almost had a fist fight on the floor of the convention and nearly uh, challenged one another to a duel until uh, John Good backed down. Henry Wise was there. By now he was the former governor but he was a delegate and he spoke more than any other Man in the convention, he uh, he was becoming the, recognized and accepted as the leader of the radical secessionist uh, minority. He was he was an erratic figure. Uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't you, you know the style of the, the the courtly southern gentleman, the the honeyed words of gentility. That wasn't Henry Wise at all. He was a, a cranky, erratic, iras- irascible man who. Who flailed his arms when he spoke and dribbled tobacco juice down the front of his linen shirt. And Wise in Full Cry was really unmistakable. <clears throat> but he wasn't getting anywhere in March of 1861 because in the weeks after Lincoln's inauguration, rumors were flying around Washington, everywhere. Rumors about every every possible uh, scenario you could think of. And uh, you know, somebody once said that. Conspiracy theories were our history for stupid people, um, which uh, I think is a bit unfair because uh, the conspiracy theories there, there was actually some some truth to the rumors being spread around, um, because behind the scenes, uh, William Henry Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State, was working surreptitiously with Upper South Unionists to keep their states on side to keep them from seceding, um, and. Seward began to hint and then even say outright that uh, the government in Washington was going to uh, evacuate some of the forts that were still in federal hands in the deep south surrounded by Confederate territory. There were two main ones, Fort Pickens shown here near Pensacola and Fort Sumter um, in South Carolina. Um, Seward thought that um, if his, his argument was that, well, if we uh, re- withdraw the uh, garrison from Fort Sumter, we can uh, still keep the flag flying at in, in, in Fort Pickens near Pensacola, and that will serve honor, but we can remove the provocation of Fort Sumter. And the Union men loved hearing that, that possibility. Um, and and Seward actually had a good idea in a sense that, that Fort Sumter was a provocation, it was right there in the eyesight. Of those hot-blooded secessionists in Charleston, uh, and it just, it just calls to mind Judge Pettigrew's comment that South Carolina was uh, too small to be a republic and too large to be an insane asylum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they said the Union men in the Upper South really latched on to this this concept, this notion that maybe maybe Lincoln's government was going to not not. Uh, provoke the confederates. Um, John Baldwin of Stanton, I, I hold him up as one of the principal leaders of the unionist majority in the convention. He, this is what he told his, his fellow delegates. Slavery was a right and a good thing on every ground, but slavery was best preserved within the federal system and not uh, by seceding and joining the confederacy. Lincoln, according to Baldwin, was not a threat to southern rights. And that's about where matters stood towards the end of March 1861. So now let's go to Act Two, the immediate triggers to war. Um, by the end of March, Lincoln was uh, becoming increasingly irritated and disappointed by the Upper South Unionists, people like John Baldwin, who actually had a private conversation with Lincoln in in the White House. These men professed to to be loyal, but they didn't want him to rock the boat, they didn't want him to provoke the Confederates, they didn't even want him to uh, attempt to uphold the Constitution that he was sworn to protect. Um, Lincoln had been content to follow a passive course for a while, and as I said, uh, he vacillated back and forth on what to do, but by the end of March he knew he had to act soon because the day after he was inaugurated on his desk was a dispatch from the commander at Fort Sumter saying they would run out of food in a few weeks and they'd have to surrender anyway whether they were attacked or not. So um, at the end of March Lincoln made a decision to to order the Navy to outfit a fleet of ships to take food and supplies down to the soldiers at Fort Sumter and they were uh, instructed to leave New York Harbor no later than April the 4th which was the very day the Virginia Convention put secession to a vote. And it lost by a huge two to one majority, an exact two to one majority voted against secession. Twice as many delegates voted against leaving the Union as voted for it. Um, Well, you all know what happened next. The Confederates fired on Fort Sumter before the relief expedition got there. There was a tremendous uh, exchange of artillery on both sides. Um, But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that despite this furious cannonade, no one on either side was killed and a lot of people who were clutching at straws by this time took that as a sign that maybe there's still a chance to to avoid a general full-scale civil war. Well, the news from Fort Sumter electrified the whole nation and it it, uh, caused turmoil in the Virginia Convention. But Even so, even after the Virginia Convention learned about the firing on Fort Sumter, people like John Janney held firm to the Union cause. Janney was the president of the convention. Um, And this is what he said. This is the day that uh, actually it would have been 150 years ago today, the day that Fort Sumter formally surrendered. Uh, This is what he said. He wrote a letter to his wife Alice, and he said, the convention, quote, still stands fast, and all the news today had no effect on it. <clears throat> Jubal Early was irate, which was his normal condition, uh, <laughs> but, but he, told his, he told his fellow delegates that, that the attack on Fort Sumter, quote, dishonored our flag, and he meant the U.S. flag. And it, the firing on Fort Sumter, placed a gulf between the Confederates and the people of Virginia. Now if you just stop and think about those comments by John Janney and Jubal Early. I mean it's hard for us knowing what happened afterwards to, to understand that, but they they still believed at that late point in the unraveling of, of the nation that, that they could stand firm and keep Virginia in the Union and maybe keep civil war from erupting across the South. Um, Let's see, and there's a, a photograph taken by a Confederate photographer not long after uh, Fort Sumter had surrendered and the Confederates had raised their flag. Um, what, how Abraham Lincoln responded to the attack on Fort Sumter would determine the course of action by people like John Janney and Jubal Early. Now on April the 15th, uh, Lincoln made known his, his way of reacting by issuing a proclamation, and it called for 75,000 volunteers, 75,000 militiamen from from the loyal states to help put down the rebellion in South Carolina. Uh, all the loyal states were asked to send troops. I think Virginia's quota was something like 2,500 or so. Uh, so there was a, a letter went out from the Secretary of War to all the governors of the loyal states, asking for a certain number of regiments and militia to be called into service to defend the government and put down the rebellion. Um, the proclamation. This proclamation devastated Union feeling throughout the Upper South. This is what one North Carolinian said. Quote, Lincoln prostrated us. He could have designed no scheme more effectual to overthrow the friends of the Union here. Now in that case he was probably going to secede anyway so it was a rationalization but but Lincoln's action did influence the the, the course of the outbreak of the war. How could it not? Um, Lincoln could have withdrawn from Fort Sumter and some people had, had suggested even at this late point that he do that. Um, he, re- he received hate mail all, ever since he had been inaugurated and there was one particular uh, anonymous letter from New York that said to Lincoln, if you give up Sumter, you will be as dead politically as John Brown. And that, that may have been, been true. Uh, but so, so what happened was the Navy vessels who were sent to relieve Fort Sumter ended up taking the, the surrendered garrison back um, to New York. Um, well, as I said, the, consumen- the conservative majority was wavering in the Virginia Convention, but it still stands it still stood fast and the conservatives did not want to uh, immediately go to um, secession. And While the convention was debating, there was a so-called people spontaneous convention that convened a few blocks later on April the 16th. Now this was hardly spontaneous because um, you'd think it was spontaneous because it, 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 it convened the day after Lincoln's proclamation, but it actually had been advertised in the paper for several weeks in advance. You know, Please come to the Spontaneous People's Convention. <laughs> <coughs> but uh, only secessionists were invited to come to this meeting, and the most extreme element in this convention planned to um, overthrow the Virginia government. <clears throat> um, John Letcher was the moderate unionist. Uh, governor of Virginia and he, uh, he was a weak leader he, and he, he looked the part, he had a, a balding head and wire-rimmed glasses and he spoke poorly uh, but he was, stood fast for the union. Well, the, the radicals in the Spontaneous People's Convention wanted to, to overthrow and arrest modest John Letcher and Letcher, uh, he, he looked the part, he, he was a modest man and that, that calls to mind Churchill's comment about uh, Clement Attlee, a sheep in sheep's clothing, um, but, uh, but, but Letcher, Letcher still, he stood for the Union even, even after the Confederates some, some excitable fellows put a Confederate flag up all over the state capitol, he, he had the state employees take it down um, but the main thing is that the, the radical uh, secessionists in the People's Spontaneous Convention were plotting to overthrow the Virginia government and, and announce that they were taking Virginia into the Confederacy. Um, And here's an engraving of Richmond in 1861. Um, By now, the delegates had moved up to the Capitol and and were debating, and one of the delegates, Robert Conrad, said this, quote, Virginians will not consent to have the Union dissolved either by Mr. Lincoln or the Southern disunionist. Another delegate mocked Conrad for his touching faith in, in Virginia's power. He said, the convention acts as if Virginia was the first power on earth, as if her voice was peace or war, as if it is only, only necessary for her to speak and the Confederate states must bow and the North must yield to her. Now, The majority of the delegates did think Virginia had overwhelming disproportionate power and Virginia would have influence but not exactly in the way they expected. Um, even the uh, reporter from the New York Times, who had been sent to cover the convention, agreed with him. He, this is what he, what he published in the Times. Virginia is unquestionably the pivot on which the fate of the union will turn. The truth was m- more complicated than that, as we shall see. Uh, the convention decided to send a three-man delegation to speak directly with Lincoln in the White House. There were three men. The leader was uh, William Ballard Preston who had been a union man but now he'd gone over to the other side. The uh, second uh, man of the delegation was uh, George With Randolph, uh, grandson of Thomas Jefferson. He was a secessionist from the beginning. He said something that I think was was prescient. He said to his fellow delegates, you have got to fight and the question is which side will you fight with? Um, The sole staunch unionist uh, among this trio sent to the White House was uh, Alexander Stewart from up in the Shenandoah Valley. Sandy Stewart was devoted to his state and his nation. Um, The radical press loved to mock him. They said he liked nothing better than to wriggle upon his belly into Lincoln's presence. Um, Stewart uh, came back with his two colleagues and reported to the convention and he said that Lincoln's, the conversation was very disappointing, that Lincoln's actions were provocative, but he begged his colleagues not to rush into secession, but to take counsel with the other states of the border. He wanted a border state convention. Um, The ordinance of secession was now proposed and every one of those 152 delegates got a chance to speak if he wanted to. Jubal Early was there, of course, and he denounced secession. He said, I have felt as if a great crime was about to be perpetrated against the cause of liberty and civilization. And he also said this very prophetic thing. Quote, I would call upon gentlemen to recall that it often happens that those who would begin a revolution do not end it. And the air in the hall by this point was dripping with hatred. It wasn't just hatred for those those abolitionists up in Boston or those hotheads down in Charleston. It was hatred for their fellow Virginians. And Unlike in the deep south, white Virginia was sharply divided about these great issues and the proceedings of this convention are our best window into the minds of people, what, people, what Virginians were thinking uh, at this time of great peril for the nation. Um, Delegate Robert Eden Scott proposed an alternative to secession. This is what he proposed, that we have a referendum that would give voters a choice, either immediate secession or border state convention. Now his his emotional pitch failed and his motion lost by 64 votes to 77, which means if only seven had switched sides, it would have changed Virginia's course dramatically. I'm not going to argue that secession would have been prevented. It probably would only have been deferred for some time. But events were moving so rapidly all around Virginia that a delay of just a few days would have dramatically changed the course for Virginia, the way it broke up. Um, Henry Wise was on his feet again. The ordinance of secession would pass now. Everybody knew that, but Wise wanted to galvanize the assembly to action. He wanted to crush, almost physically crush, the uh, conservative unionists who were now losing their majority. Uh, And he also wanted to to instigate military action against federal facilities in Virginia before they had voted on secession. He spoke briefly, but uh, it was um, an impression, it made an impression that no one in the hall would ever forget. He reached into his coat and and pulled out a giant revolver and placed it on the podium before him. And I'll use that as a cue not to pull out a revolver, but to take a drink. <laughs> <coughs> uh, one of the people observing him said that his hair stood off from his head as if charged with electricity. <coughs> um, and then he took out his pocket watch and put it on the podium as well and made the pocket watch almost as much a symbol of in, of intimidation as the revolver because he said blood will be flowing before nightfall at Harper's Ferry. And it wasn't an idle threat because Henry Wise and some of those radicals from the People's Spontaneous Convention had had sent several militia companies uh, through the Shenandoah Valley up to Harper's Ferry to seize the federal arsenal there, that arsenal that John Brown had had attacked uh, about two years before. Uh, Wise shouted at the delegates. He said, we are here indulging in foolish debates, the only result of which must be delay and perhaps ruin. Baldwin got up, John Baldwin got up and tried to object, but Wise uh, shouted him down, questioned his loyalty, and, and Baldwin just did not have the personality to stand up to Henry Wise and he sat down, Baldwin later became, he later wore a Confederate uniform very reluctantly but as he sat down he said, the future looks dark, dark and dreary. John Janney, the President, stepped down from the chair to speak as an ordinary delegate and this is what he told his colleagues. The convention's decision, quote, are pregnant with the issue of human freedom all over the globe. I believe that if if this experiment fails, that is if the United States of America fails, there is no hope left for representative government. Wise called for the vote on the Ordinance of Secession and it passed 88 to 55 150 years ago on Sunday. So now we go to Act 3, the descent into violence. Henry Wise indeed was prophetic because that night The militiamen reached Harper's Ferry. The small garrison there set fire to buildings and fled across the uh, Potomac to Maryland. Uh, The violence had begun and the Upper South began to break apart. Well, you can imagine uh, the response uh, all over the South and the North. Monster rallies in in all parts of the nation to the attack on Harper's Ferry and and the, the to the southern response to Fort Sumter. This is the what they call, actually literally call the monster rally in Union Square in New York and the journalists said this was the largest gathering of human beings in North America to that date and for once uh, the journalists were not exaggerating because there were hundreds of thousands of people there. Um, Well militiamen from Massachusetts were the first uh, organized body of soldiers to respond to Lincoln's call for troops and they took the train from Boston down towards uh, Washington but they, in Baltimore they, they ran into trouble. Maryland was remember like Virginia a, a slave state in the upper south and it could have gone both ways. Thomas Hicks was the timid Unionist governor of Maryland and uh, he actually he said unlike Virginia he said well we'll respond to Lincoln's call for troops and we'll send the regiments that are requested, but he asked Lincoln's government for a guarantee. He asked Lincoln if uh, he could guarantee that the Maryland soldiers would only have to guard Washington, D.C. and not put down the rebellion farther south. (coughs) Amazingly, Lincoln's government gave him that guarantee, but Hicks dithered and he satisfied no one on either side. Uh, In the meantime, as I said, that Massachusetts regiment had reached Baltimore and At that time in large cities that had three or four uh, rail lines coming into them, the rail lines didn't connect. You had to to get off the train at one end of town and walk or take a carriage through town to catch uh, a southbound train or a northbound train the opposite way out of the city. And That's what happened to the the, the Massachusetts soldiers. They had to get off the train and walk along Pratt Street along the inner Baltimore Harbor. And a, a secessionist crowd gathered around them and began throwing rocks and then began firing pistols at them. And what we had was the so-called Pratt Street riot in which three, civilians and tw- uh, three soldiers and 12 civilians were killed. This was the first uh, bloodshed and anger of the American Civil War. Well, this was bad enough, but uh, the soldiers made their way to the train station south of town and, and went on to Washington. But that night the uh, citizens of Baltimore burned all the railroad bridges north of town. And that meant that Baltimore was isolated from the north and so was Washington. Because Washington the rail line north led through Baltimore and that was cut off and the rail line west, the B&O west to uh, the Ohio Valley was now in the hands of Henry Wise's militia at Harper's Ferry. Washington was cut off and feared being attacked by secessionist militia from both Virginia and Maryland. Um, General Winfield Scott was the commander of the army. He was ailing, aged, overweight, but he was still sharp as attack and he organized the defenses of Washington. He had only a few hundred soldiers and maybe as many Marines, so he decided that in the giant new stone treasury building, that's where the last readout would be, where the Lincoln administration would make its last stand if need be. At the same time, uh, the government learned that Virginia militiamen were attacking or gathering around the Navy Yard near Norfolk. And so the Secretary of the Navy sent a gunboat, the USS Pawnee, to Norfolk to try to lead out all of the the vessels that were ready to leave there. Um, Actually, when the Pawnee was pulling into the Navy Yard, they heard cheers from the shore, and they thought they got there just in time. Well, the Navy Yard was still in Union hands, but the, uh, the superintendent, who was loyal but weak, uh, had scuttled all but one of his ships. So all the, peop- the, the soldiers on the Pawnee then had to execute their plan B, which was to destroy as much government property as possible, and that's what they did, and they only managed to, to bring out one ship. Uh, A number of others were settling into the mud because they'd been scuttled, including the USS Merrimack. The result was the fire at the Norfolk Navy Yard, which was the the worst disaster to befall the U.S. Navy before Pearl Harbor. Secessionists called it vandalism, but they were happy enough because despite the fires, they recovered about a thousand cannons and the USS Merrimack. Washington was still cut off and so what to do about that? It turns out that two railroad executives in Philadelphia figured out a way. Um, They decided instead of trying to just bull your way through by sending army regiments down the rail line to Baltimore and fighting with those secessionists in Baltimore, they would put the soldiers on a steamship and go around the Chesapeake Bay and up to Annapolis, the tiny sleepy little Maryland capital on the western shore of the Chesapeake because there was a small rail spur that would lead them to, uh, to Washington. Well, the general in charge of the soldiers, the Union soldiers, on the steamship uh, who went to uh, Annapolis was Benjamin Franklin Butler. And I should go back before we talk about Butler. There's a picture of the USS Constitution, which is the school ship at the Naval Academy, and. The Naval Academy was still loyal to the Union but feared being overwhelmed by Maryland militiamen coming in from the rural counties surrounding Annapolis. And The uh, Secretary of the Navy actually sent a cable to the Commandant of the Navy Yard and uh, told him uh, see the plan was to, to escape on the USS Constitution if they were overwhelmed. Gideon Wells, the Naval Secretary, sent a cable which he I don't think he understood the irony of his cable because he wrote Cable the Commandant, um, defend the Constitution at all hazards. If it cannot be done, destroy her. Well, as I said, Ben Butler was the leader of the Union forces to reach um, Annapolis. And for all of his faults and problems later in the Civil War, and there were many, and what a wonderfully uh, shifty-looking fellow he is, um, <laughs> Butler was uh, on this occasion was very astute and diplomatic. He didn't just go in with guns blazing. Uh, He he disembarked his his soldiers very diplomatically and firmly marched through town. Um, And he's a good example of what uh, Will Rogers said that diplomacy is the art of saying nice doggy until you can find a rock. Uh, (laughs) And and he succeeded. Uh, the secessionists had torn up the railroad tracks, but his men repaired them and they marched into Washington to relieve what people thought of as the Siege of Washington. And there's a picture of some of his troops uh, on the south bank of the Potomac looking back across actually to Georgetown. And again, a better picture of the incomplete capital in 1861. Still, after all these events, after calamity at Fort Sumter, at Harper's Ferry, at Baltimore and at Norfolk. After all these events, people still thought a war could be avoided. And this is what a Washington D.C. newspaper actually printed. After all these events, Virginia should quote, take up the godlike office of mediator. Too late. A wheeling newspaper uh, up in the northwest corner of Virginia Represented and reflected the sentiment of people in that part of the state, and it said we can look to Richmond for taxes and treason, but for little else, uh, which is still the sentiment of some people today. I think. <laughs> Lincoln's attorney general Edward Bates said that when Virginia dismantles the Union, she will herself be dismantled, and that's exactly what happened, because a lot of the Unionist delegates to the Virginia convention went home and began the process at this convention in Wheeling of um, organizing what would later become West Virginia. West Virginians had been aggrieved for for decades at the uh, political domination of eastern Virginia and so now they they took their uh, chance to to make their dream of a different separate Virginia come true. But it wouldn't be easy because many of those mountain counties were hotly fought over it would be a long civil war. Um, Up to this point, up to this very point, in mid-April 1861, if you showed this map to the people of Virginia in whatever part of the state, they wouldn't know what it was. It's not Virginia, it's incomplete. So that's an anachronism. Um, On May the 27th, about a month later, after civilians had died in Baltimore and four upper south states had seceded, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas, A small group of men gathered in Frankfort, Kentucky, and they were the embodiment and representing the failure of those Upper South Unionists who wanted to take counsel with their neighbors in the border. Uh, Even after Virginia's secession, proponents of the Border State Convention didn't give up. Um, There was little for this pitiful gathering to do in Frankfort, however, but to decry the violence and adjourn in failure. And here's a map showing the progression of secession. You see the the seven original Confederate states in the deep south. In gray the four upper south states that did not secede until after Fort Sumter and after Lincoln called for volunteers. In blue the uh, slave states who did not secede and in red the states that remained loyal and didn't represent uh, slavery, didn't recognize slavery. Well, to get today we we have trouble imagining a different outcome than this this tragic civil war, because we know the outcome on the one hand, devastating war, on the other hand, the end to slavery and the preservation of the of the union. But for many of the people in the middle, these these upper south conservative unionists for many of them some some middle way seemed possible for a long time they sought a peaceful resolution, and I think we they deserve some sympathy from us for their effort. Of course they failed and even if they had seceded and Virginia had stayed in the Union according to their terms slavery would have been perpetuated for we don't know how long. Well what was the outcome four years later? This is Richmond in April of 1865. It's a photograph taken from Churchill you can see barely make out the Capitol on the horizon to the left. Uh, and I think everyone here probably knows the story about how Jefferson Davis was interrupted in his prayers at St. Paul's Episcopal Church on April the 2nd, 1865 when a message came that Lee could no longer hold the line at Petersburg and would have to retreat. The Confederate government would have to abandon its capital. Confederate military engineers that night after Davis's train left for Danville, they set fire to the railroad bridges across the James and burned the tobacco warehouses, the government owned tobacco warehouses, not the private property tobacco warehouses. And they set those fires when there was dead calm, but by morning a very strong wind arose from the south and blew the flames to the north through the business district and set fire to everything below Capitol Square. Citizens of, of Richmond fled to the green space around Capitol Square for their lives and watched the fire consume their city. Mayor Joseph Mayo surrendered the city twice, once to Union forces on the eastern outskirts of town and then again formally at City Hall, which was on the north side of Capitol Square. He surrendered to Godfrey Weitzel, the very young Union general who was in charge of the troops who entered town. Here you can see the ruined tobacco warehouses around the, the canal turning basin, My favorite picture of this period shows it's taken from Capitol Square. You can see those Union cavalry mounts tied up to the railing at the base of Capitol Square and the smoke still rising from the broken chimneys and piles of rubble in the distance to the right. The customs house which we call the old post office. There's a better picture of it. It was the only building uh, below Capitol Square to escape the fire an enterprising newspaper man pulled out a pre-war map and colored in black all the the area that was burned in the fire. And this map was irritatingly printed with south at the north, so I inverted it so you could get your bearings. Um, The thing to note about the fire is that it didn't burn the whole city. Uh, Actually, the city in 1865 had grown beyond uh, the area shown here. Only a tenth of the area of the city burned. However, that tenth included nine tenths of the business district so all the jobs went up in smoke. The next day, one day after the fire, one day after the Union Army marched in, a very large rowboat pulled up at Rockets Landing, very much like the one in this picture. A man with a tall stovepiped hat had come to Richmond. Lincoln was actually at City Point to to visit uh, U.S. Grant and he just happened to be there when the lines broke and Richmond fell. And so he, he'd heard that his, his soldiers had taken Richmond and he insisted on being taken upriver to Richmond. He started out on a gunboat. The gunboat reached Confederate obstructions in the river and so Lincoln then got off on a smaller steamboat. It continued further but then it had engine trouble. So he then left his security detail on that small steamboat and, and took 12 oarsmen and went in this large rowboat upriver and leaving his security detail scratching their heads in the distance. You can imagine what would happen to the Secret Service if they ever did such a thing today. When Lincoln arrived he was greeted by a throng of, of freed slaves, perhaps this family which was photographed in April of 1865 along the canal. and You can see some of the burned mills in the background. This is a picture I suspect everyone here knows, and uh, Paul knows this. That as an editor, I, I hate it when, when overuse and misuse of words uh, uh, drains them of all meaning. And one of those words is iconic. Everything is iconic. I mean, this could be an iconic glass of water, uh, but, but, but I will allow f- for you to call this picture iconic because it just encapsulates uh, the devastation in Richmond with these two women dressed in. Morning gliding past the rubble. Now I've shown you a lot of pictures of physical destruction and here's another one, a famous picture of the Capitol and you can see uh, all the ruined buildings below the Capitol and above the Capitol you can just barely make out a flag which might just be this flag which is in our exhibit upstairs. It is one of the first Union flags to be flown over Richmond in April of 1865. Uh, Tremendous physical devastation throughout the South, but it cannot compare with the the human suffering and the human cost. 600,000 lives lost. Every one of these men had a mother and a father and perhaps a wife and children and brothers and sisters. Just imagine the devastation for generations to come. Now, I can't leave the subject without talking about Henry Wise again. He survived. He became a Confederate brigadier general. Uh, He was actually at Appomattox. He was sickly by then. He was a pitiful figure with his legs wrapped in gray blankets. Um, One of my favorite uh, comments about Henry Wise was was the historian said this Henry Wise was the quintessential Virginian, widely loved and deeply hated. And after the surrender, Henry Wise made his way home to his plantation on the Atlantic coast. And at his plantation house, he found Northern women teaching African Americans, newly freed slaves, to read and write. And they learned to read and write at the instruction of a daughter of the man Henry Wise hanged, John Brown of Harper's Ferry. Thank you very much. I think we have some mobile microphones. If anybody has a question, you spoke Anyone? of uh, Secretary Seward working with the uh, Unionists yes. in Virginia. Were there Confederate emissaries who did likewise with the secessionist group and? Did they offer as a corporate incentive to make Richmond the capital? Excellent question and comment. Yes. Um, While the Virginia Convention was meeting, a number of the seceded states in the Deep South sent emissaries, diplomats, to various Upper South states to encourage them to secede likewise. And uh, there's a good book by Charles Dew called Apostles of Disunion, which is a very thin book, but it it talks about... um, these men from the Deep South. Some of them went to Maryland, some to Virginia, and some other Upper South states. And the convention actually allowed them to give speeches to the delegates of the convention. And they uh, were very clear that, that uh, Virginia and the other Upper South states um, were in danger, that slavery was endangered in, in Virginia if it remained in the Union. It could only be protected if they seceded. And so they appealed both to, to Southern honor to states' rights and to protection of slavery, all those things. Um, they spoke in the Virginia Convention, I believe in February. Uh, they were actually kind of early in the period when the convention deliberated, so they didn't have as much of an influence because the conservative minor- majority was firmly in control at that time, so they, did, they didn't have as much uh, influence. But you're right that they, behind the scenes and February and March and early April, there were people on both sides trying to convince this group of eight slave states in the middle um, to, to join their side. It's a good comment. That's, it's, it's, probab- it's one of the big themes of this period of American history. Yes. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, how influential do you feel the um, Richmond Dispatch and its editorial uh, uh, opinions? How influential was that in terms of opinions of secession? Um, Richmond had a number of newspapers and newspapers were quite influential in American history at at this time. They also were very partisan. There was no presumption that they were dispassionate at all. They were frequently uh, owned by political partisans. I I wouldn't point out so much the Richmond dispatch as uh, the Richmond examiner uh, John Moncure Daniel was the editor there and he was, he was one of the more violent secessionists who denounced um, the Union people in Virginia who, who didn't want to secede. He'd actually he'd been a consul in uh, Turin, in Italy and he'd just come back. And he brought back all these advanced notions of, of European uh, advanced European notions about nationalism because the Italians were in the process of organizing and so uh, John Moncure Daniel was one of the ones who developed this notion of the South being a totally different ethnic group from the North and, and therefore should secede. But, but uh, the editorials that he wrote were just—they're wonderful because they're just full of fire and brimstone. Uh, newspaper editors had a great deal of influence a, at that time. If you think about it, go back a little bit. Uh, the telegraph had only been invented less than two decades before, and you have. The growth of the telegraph and the railroads, at the same time that newspapers were becoming dailies in cities all over the country, so you have this almost instantaneous flow of news, at least in the eastern third of, of North America, so that uh, the telegraph lines would follow the rail lines to the next town, and the newspapers would have instant news, almost, maybe not quite as instant as we have today, but pretty darn close. And so newspaper editors had an overwhelming. Uh, influence the uh, the Richmond Whig was more uh, against secession, uh, but by the time of secession, you could see uh, the lines were crumbling, and the Union people could see the handwriting on the wall. But not until the very end, and that's the point: is that they they held a majority, despite what editors like John Moncure Daniel said, until the very last, until after Lincoln's uh, proclamation. Wow. Yeah, one back here. Okay, uh, I was interested in the uh, research for your book, and I'm sure there were uh, a number of times where you had that aha moment, or something that you found that was new or interesting or surprised you. Uh, anything come to mind? Oh wow! <laughs> I, somebody once said that uh, um, to to copy. Uh, to steal from one person's plagiarism, to steal from many is research. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I didn't do that. Um, gee, an aha moment. Oh, I'll tell you one, one little story when this has to do with the chapter on um, the militia trying to take over the Norfolk Navy Yard and the U.S. Navy trying to evacuate its ships. In Richmond, again, it goes back to the Telegraph. Uh, if you look at uh, in the State Library uh, which they now call the Library of Virginia um, the, state, the, the Virginia State Library has the executive papers of the Governor's and in Governor Letcher's files are these uh, telegrams from Norfolk and they're, they're really wonderful because these are people who are you could almost feel their fervor saying, you've gotta send militia, but we we can take over the Navy Yard before the Navy gets here. And that's not so much an aha moment as it it brings the immediacy of these events home. And there are, if you go into our library, there are many bits of paper up there that are still filled with emotion. And if you really wanna understand what people were feeling and believing at that time, our, our predecessors 150 years ago, Virginians who preceded us—they—they they live their lives not knowing what will happen next week or next month, and we don't either. Uh, but there are eight million bits of paper in our archives that are filled with that kind of emotion. And I would encourage you, if you're interested in research, to pay a visit uh, to our reading room and and get a feel for what Virginians were doing 150 years ago. Thanks. Thank mm-hmm. you.